scripture lesson this morning comes from the 8th chapter of the book of Acts, and I'll be reading verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandak, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? From his life, for his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again. But he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotos and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Let's pray for Pastor Mike. Heavenly Father, we pray today that you would give each person here uh, the same spirit and heart you gave to this eunuch from Ethiopia who had a sincere desire to understand your word. God, we pray today that you would open our hearts and that we would hear today from Pastor Mike and that we would receive and we too would rejoice at hearing the truth. God bless Mike as he comes. Bring him your spirit and with that, the words that you would speak to your church. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Throughout this summer, um, we have been searching diligently, um, faithfully, and our search has come, in, come into great fruition uh, for a new adult choir director to, to lead the traditional services uh, service here in our uh, music. And her name is Peggy Rosencrantz. I don't think Peggy's probably here today. Oh, she is right there. Stand up, Peggy. Let's give you a wave. Yay, there's Peggy. Yay. Yay. We're glad to have her here. You, you can see a little bit about her, and you're going to hear from your pastor right now, but from others later. The choir is not closed. The choir is an open group. So if you love to sing, you do not have to have a high level of uh, ability, but you do have to have a heart for Jesus, and we'd love to have you join. I want to tell you what excitement there is as we begin a new school year. For all the things that happen here, your, you know, your powerhouse, your Sunday morning, Sunday school transitions a little bit. And I want to, to offer an invitation to all of you. There are three spots where we need some help still at Powerhouse, which is our Wednesday night program. Uh, we need a teacher for our little kids, the preschool kids, kids that can't read. We need uh, a leader, a uh, helper for the kids that can read, the elementary school kids. 
if that's your call. Those classes go from 6.30 to 7.30. There's curriculum support and all that sort of thing. And as essential, and maybe a little bit more difficult, uh, we need groups of people that will take care of meal cleanup. We have vendors serve meals that night, but then we have to put it all away and clean up after it. So if you're interested in any of those things, talk to anybody on the church staff, send an email, write it on a piece of paper, throw it in the uh, the offering, whatever you can to get a hold of us. I trust you. We need the help. We will return a message to you. That's probably enough announcements. Let's go to the heart of worship, which is always, of course, the proclamation uh, of the gospel. The mission of Jesus Christ, uh, the mission of this church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. We put that up on the screen because we believe it's important. It's also in your bulletin each and every week for us as a church to review who we are. From time to time, we get doing the many things that are the life of the church, the many things that are the life of the disciple. We have to be reminded why we're doing them and who we are doing them for. And I put that mission statement up there today to remind you that we are people on a mission. That, that is to say, we are people working to work for God, not for someone else. Our work that we do at Marian Methodist is for God. He is our target, to please him, to honor him, to grow his work in the world. That's what we're about. We're on a mission to do that. And that work is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, not something else. We, we have a target on the making of disciples of Jesus Christ because that is how the, the, the church has grown throughout all the ages. And so in obedience to scriptures and the Spirit's movement to throw our lives at transforming the world to be godlier, not gooder, but to be godlier in all things and not something else. So, so I'm holding my bulletin today because you can see the, the mission on the outside, but I also want you to look at what it says on the inside. I, I hope over these three weeks that you keep one of those bulletins to remind you how it is that we got to this mission and, and, and you can see that, that this new work that came a handful of years ago now uh, is the heart of a three-week sermon series that Keith and I are preaching and today we're at the middle bullet where it says we are to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, I've been a Methodist for a long time and when we say, hey, we must make disciples, our knees get a little soft. It makes our hearts shake a little bit. And we say, but Pastor Mike, that's very scary. That sounds manipulative to say that we're going to make something of a person that they are not right now. I I know this has happened. I remember being in Enterprise, Alabama one day. I had spoke, uh, given a, a talk at the Christian Retreat Center there, and I had gone down to uh, kind of a beach-like area there on the Gulf of Mexico and was sitting with a youth because, incidentally, they had asked me to go talk with them. He had asked me to come talk to me, and he was filling me in on some of the problems of his life, and I started sharing some of the witness that God has given to me. And he says, why are you even talking to me? Are you just trying to make me a disciple so you can get another notch on your Jesus belt? I wasn't even wearing a belt. I was wearing a swimming suit. <laughs> but, but, but you know, some people think that, 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 well, that's why the church wants to make disciples. So, so the people in the church can get a notch on their Jesus belt and then God thinks they're all happy and cheering them on in evidence, something like that. But I want to tell you this, because you know it. People are not 
like Play-Doh. You know, I have a grandkid. He's not ready to play with Play-Doh yet, so I have to remember playing with it myself. You know, you take a chunk of Play-Doh and you shove it into one of those machines and you push hard on it and it all comes out and it's all shaped in a star or whatever, you know, thing you put on the orifice at the other end. It all looks the way you want it to look. But I'm telling you this because you're people and you know you're not like that. I can't just take you and mold you and shape you and make of you whatever I want. People are not like Play-Doh. We're not. We can't be shaped, we can't be shaping other people at our, our own whim. And so when I look at those feelings and those questions that, that, that Methodists have brought to me for the 30 some years of my ministry, those feelings, those insecurities, or even our own bad experiences. You've all probably had this once, haven't you? You've had some sort of bad experience with someone, even though you're a United Methodist, even though you're a Christian, that someone was trying to win you to Jesus Christ. Have you had that? And maybe you came away with it and say, oh, they were just trying to blank me over the head with the Bible. What's the word? It's never embraced me, loved me. We usually feel like somebody's beating me over the head with something. And so maybe it's because of our own insecurities. Maybe it's because of our own feelings. Maybe it's because we've had those kind of experiences where someone has tried to inappropriately save us, inappropriately mold us, inappropriately put us in ways that have caused, now hear this because this comes back to us, that have caused three generations of shyness. Three generations of shyness and disciple making in the North American United Methodist Church. The reason I know that and the reason I say three generations, because in the last 50 years in Iowa, as the population has gone up a little bit, Methodists have gone from 225,000 of us to 175,000 of us. We've got a little shyness in our disciple-making abilities, and in our disciple-making acumen, in our disciple-making inclination. And we have to think through where that's rooted And we have to decide, and this is a decision, whether we're going to follow our mission, which we claimed that was not forced upon us, or not. So as your pastor, my prayer is that this morning I can give some healthful and helpful insights into this work that are based on Holy Scripture. Now, I looked around, and I've looked around many times. Did you know there is no definitive disciple-making manual out there? Wouldn't it be cool if you just go down to the church library down here or go online and say, I'm going to buy me one of those disciple-making manuals and say, okay, page one, do this, check, did it with him, check, page two. That There's not one, unless you count the Holy Scriptures, because that's the only one you have. See, praise the Lord that there's not a one, two, three list because I'll tell you what, if there's a one, two, three list, none of us in here would follow it, would we, Jason? No. We wouldn't because we're people and we know that what God needs of us is, is our willingness to go along with him to let, to, to let his creative spirit work in our heart for the winning of the person that is not yet a disciple. And so let's start where we need to start. The first step in making disciples is being one. To make a disciple, you have to be one. Does your life reek of discipleship? You know how you go into somebody's house and you can smell what they're cooking? I I even, my olfactory senses are such such a place that I can come into your house, unless you're really good with the Febreze, And I can get pretty close to telling you what you had last night for dinner. 
I, I just have that. And I love it when you go into somebody's house, especially if you're expected, and you smell something. Oh, I say, ah, oh, I can smell the turkey. I can smell the roast. I can smell the barbecue. And, and you know it's being prepared for you. That's the way our homes smell. My question is, is that the fragrance that, that comes off your life, do other people get the sense through what they see and feel and hear and smell about you, that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, our Lord? Is discipleship what your life reeks of? Is that what's brewing off of you? Because I want to tell you that to become, you know, the first step in making a disciple is, is being one. And, and, and I remind you to go back in time and, and remember when you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because I got to tell you, a lot of us have stood up on a stage, maybe even held up our hands, maybe knelt down here and said along with the words of the old hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And then a lot of us sat right down and didn't follow him anywhere. Because we're sitting in a pew and you can't follow from there, you've got to become a disciple. See, when you receive Jesus, you're a convert. You're converted to the faith. But as you're a convert, you must become a disciple. See, converts become disciples. Let, let me give you a little litany. I'll try not to go as fast as I want to so that you can hear it. Converts... These are people that have said, I've decided to follow Jesus. I'm using that term for people that said, I've decided to follow Jesus. Converts are believers who live like the world. So in this case, the North American culture. Disciples are believers that live like Jesus. Converts are focused on their values, their worries, their lives, their priorities, their fears, and lifestyles. Disciples are focused on Jesus. Converts go to church. Disciples, as your pastor told you last week, are the church. Converts are involved in the mission of Jesus. They're involved in the mission of Jesus. Disciples are committed to it and throw their complete self at it. Converts are all about believing. I believe in Jesus. I believe in, in who he is. This is a great thing. And disciples are all about being in Jesus. Converts are comfortable because they know Jesus is their Lord. And they're secure in him as their Savior. Disciples make sacrifices. Time, talents, treasure. Converts talk. Disciples make more disciples. A disciple is willing to die for Jesus, and maybe more importantly, a disciple is willing to live for Jesus every moment, every day, every decision, every blessing, every difficulty throughout all of life. So the first step in being a disciple is, is to, is to be, a, be one and, to, and, and, and converts become disciples. And, and how do you become that? Well, you repent of your sin and you trust Jesus as your Savior. Now that seems obvious, but it is not. Because you know who we like to trust the most? We like to trust ourselves. You've heard that here more than many times probably. Because Jesus offers grace, please hear this, Jesus offers grace and love without condition without condition, 
but not without expectation to any who would believe him. He offers grace without condition, but not without expectation to all who would believe in him. And we must give up sin. Now we say, oh, well, I've repented of my sin. I want to tell you that repenting is a current issue, not a past one. When I was converted to Jesus Christ, I repented of my sins, but I better be doing it daily, if not hourly. Amen, Methodists? You know, repenting is an ongoing thing. We need to constantly be repenting of our sins, of our willingness to try to find our own way, the things that we do wrong, and all the things that get between us and God. Last week I talked, I missed the Haiti mission last night because I was talking at a church in Des Moines. I gave everybody there that came in a penny and I said, now hold up a penny and reach it out until it becomes between you and Jesus, the cross of Christ. Where do you have to put it before your vision of Christ is blocked, the cross? And you don't need very much money to block your eye from seeing Jesus. We don't need very much ego. We don't need very much experience in the church to sometimes block us from our need to constantly be repenting of our sins. And we need to trust God. We need to trust in Jesus as as our Lord and Savior and engage in a lifetime of spiritual growth and increasing in godliness. I I preach every year at uh, the confirmation launch. We had a meeting for the new confirmation class. We get a whole new batch. We get to confirm the kids I talked about earlier this this morning, uh, later in September. But uh, mid-September, we start a whole new class of seventh graders in, and others in confirmation. And I always say at that meeting of parents and, and students, the one thing that I'm trying to avoid in I, as I lead students is what I call the 13-31 faith. What's a 13-31 faith? A 13-31 faith is when you have the same faith at 31 years of age as you did in seventh grade when you're 13. Because that is not a faith. You would not want anything else in your, in your life to be like that. You would not want to have someone in your department head, you know, that is acting like a seventh grader where you work. You would not have, want a police officer to come up beside me. Oh my gosh, you're going too fast. You know, you don't want them acting like that. Can't you read the signs? They're for you. You know, we, don't, we do not want people in authority acting as if they're junior high schoolers, nor should we as Christians be acting like junior high schoolers in our faith when we've uh, raised into our 30s. So don't have a 1331 faith, but that means you have to commit yourself to a lifetime of spiritual growth and increasing in godliness. And remember that says godliness, not goodliness. It's godliness. That, that means that your spiritual you know, inquiry and your theological development need to continue to expand. You need to ask deeper and deeper questions and not engage. You know, so much of our world is simply binary right now. It's either this or that. That's not theological inquiry or development at all. We need to see God in every decision and every behavior. And I'll tell you, if you do, if, if you are committed to a lifetime of spiritual growth and, God, and increasing in godliness, I'll tell you this, because I know it to be true, you're going to stick out. It doesn't even matter what you, where you live. You're going to stick out when you're living your life for Jesus because you're different than a lot of the people around you. You, you must be a good disciple which is a growing term. To embrace and engage in the mission of Jesus Christ, which is disciples make disciples. The whole history of Christianity, of the propagation of the faith that we're a part of, is one to one. One person to one person. 
telling the great news of God. And I'll tell you another thing, which is really interesting. This is really important. The most prolific times and places where the churches grow are those times and places where Christianity is being oppressed. Isn't that interesting? And while it's true that we worship fully here, given the statistic I told you a few moments ago about the shrinking size of the United Methodist Church, we have to offer ourselves up to this. First of all, that was during our watch. You know, I've been a pastor 33 years, so that shrink has been during my watch. And I'm looking out at some gray hair and saying, that was during yours too. And if you're alive, it's during all of ours. So let's look at this fact. We can whine and complain and cry, and I hear this at Methodist meetings all the time, about what happened and what we didn't do. But I can't do, tell, do anything about 1965, 85, 95, or last week. But I do know that my mission is in front of me, and so we live in what I will call an age of opportunity for the church. Because if you read the news, whether it's on the internet or newspaper, whether you watch the news, whether it's on TV or internet, you're going to see that Christianity is being oppressed in most every place. In most every place in our North American culture. Which means, according to our history, not only do we live in what we call the land of opportunity, we right now as makers of disciples, makers of disciples, are living in an age of opportunity. And here's the fuel. Take a look at the screen. Matthew 28 says this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Do you know why some people doubted? Because they're people. I'm a people, I understand that. Then Jesus came to them and said, all, not some, Embrace that word all. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, which is by the way, therefore, that means he's going to give some of it to you. Therefore, go and make. That's a movement thing with a task. Go somewhere, make something. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So what we need to know is not what we need to know. It's what Christ has commanded you. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I have preached that more than once, and generally the first claim of United Methodists is, I want to do that, I don't know what to say. And I say, of course you do not. How could you? You don't know what to say to another person that needs Jesus. Don't lean on yourself. Lean on the one who gives the command. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all of your ways, trust him. We said, but I'm, a, I'm afraid. And I just, don't worry so much about telling your story. Tell God's story. See, the gospel message is God's message, not our testimony. Don't, don't let that... We, we work hard at camp and something to remind people that the gospel message 
is God's message, not our testimony. See, when Philip was walking with the Ethiopian eunuch, he doesn't tell the story of his own faith. He doesn't say, oh man, I just came from this place of Samaria, had this huge revival. People were coming to Christ one after another, and they just, they just, they, they just overwhelmed me. There was so many. He doesn't say any of that to him. Because that's not what the Ethiopian eunuch asked. See, Philip's example is just to tell him God's word. And I want to remind you that you already know some of it. You can know more of it. But when people ask you about your faith, why do you, what is that smell of discipleship I feel coming off of you? What is that fragrance of Christianity I get out of that? What, what does it mean? Tell them some of God's message. Look what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He doesn't try to get complicated. And let me tell you that what Paul says mirrors this piece in Christian liturgy. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has come again. By the way, that's probably about all you need. But this is what Paul says. For what I received, I passed on to you as a first important, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that means put out of our sight, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Again, so when you're encountering someone asking about what it means to be a disciple, you know right away, you say, well, pastor told me there's not a big discipleship manual book. What do I need to tell him? Tell them God's message. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Why? You know If I'd have given you a sheet of paper and had you written down, you'd all scored at least 75% today. Why did Christ die? Because of the brokenness of the world. And specifically an individual, if you're talking to a person face to face, he died for your brokenness, past, present, and what's to come. He died that you might have the restoration of heart. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And he comes to defeat your most undefeatable opponent, death itself. Christ is risen. Our hearts say he's risen indeed. He's not trapped in the grave. Some place his bones are not rotting and turning into dust like so many others before and after him. He's alive and set loose in the world today. He defeats that. And, and it starts with the truth in your heart. Now, now hear this. Because here's the truth this all starts with. Paul says it in Romans, but you say it maybe in a different way. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. You know, when you're not ashamed of the gospel, it's, its fragrance is leaking out of you all the time. The effervescence of your spirit, the way that you approach people, simply says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation that brings everyone to God, everyone who would believe. And so you speak because of your salvation. You don't have to tell everybody about it. But the reason that you can make disciples is because you have been saved. You are not lost. You might be running away, but you are not lost. So when asked, simply tell the truth of your belief. Don't be try, try to become a, you know, a, a Bible teacher that, that should be teaching in a seminary. Don't be, try to become an expert. I always remind people, if they asked you, it's because they wanted to ask you. If they wanted to ask me, heck, I'm on the internet. I'm, I'm here in real life. I'm reachable. You simply, when you look at that, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, need to remember that you cannot give what you do not have. So knowing God's word, knowing God's word is critical 
to making disciples. And do you remember this old commercial was on a few few years ago? You know, there's a guy. He's you know he's got surgical clothes on. He's standing kind of over in the corner, and he's saying to people in this operating room, "I, I need this stat. I need an IV stat. I need this." And they say, "Doctor, are you a new doctor in the hotel here or, or in the hospital here?" He says, "No, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night." Right? Do you want surgery done to you by that guy? No, of course not. Are you that guy? Of course not. And I want to make sure that you understand this. When you look at the fact is that you cannot give what you do not have, so knowing God's word is critical making, to making disciple, don't just think that if you go sleep at a mid-priced hotel and have a great cinnamon roll for breakfast, that all of a sudden you'll become a biblical scholar in the morning. That's not what happens. It doesn't happen by, by, by just a, a wishful thought or, or, the, or the wink of an eye. No. Knowledge is gained by study and immersion. You, you become a better disciple by immersing yourself in the study of the scriptures. I, I remember, because it's so uh, big in our life, a number of years ago when my 18-year-old daughter went to be a missionary in Nicaragua for a year, she had five years of high school, uh, high school Spanish here in town. But I remember when she was talking to us on the phone one day, I said, how's your Spanish coming? She says, well, Dad, you learn a language pretty fast when you depend on it to find a bathroom or something to eat. <laughs> and you get immersed in it. Best way to le- learn a language, everybody knows this, is go live in the culture. You'll learn it. You have to. You have to to live. How do we as Christians immerse ourselves in the study of scripture. Well, we just need to get into it. We need to get into a little bit. Don't try to give all of it to people. Learn a little bit at a time. Immerse yourself in it, but be faithful. Man, man, we live in an age of opportunity. You could be downloading the Bible app right here while I'm talking. Maybe you are. It's a lot better than YouTubes and stuff like that. Because when you immerse yourself in this, you, you, you can be helpful and helpful in sharing scriptures to friends that, that make inquiry. But, but keep it really simple because, you know, if someone comes to you and says, I need to know about the grace of God, you simply say, oh, just, just read Romans 1 through 8 and you'll have it all. <laughs> like, no, they won't. They'll be like, I'm not asking them any more questions. Give them a few little things. Remember, I believe the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has come again. That's one sentence, two commas. Now, I can take you to some places. And I want you to have a thicker and deeper faith in that. But for the inquiring soul, and they are all around you, incidentally, you need to have some equipment to work with. But don't give them a whole buffet in one load. Second step in making disciples is willingness. Christians, we have to see the need. You know, if there's no perception that there's a need for more disciples, we won't try to make any more. If your heart's not broken, if you don't weep because people are missing out on Christ, if you're not willing to go after them, we might not be about the right thing in this church. As of August 1, 2016, 53% of the people in Iowa claim to be Christians. Isn't that a lower number than you thought it would be? I believe it's a lower number than it should be. That means 47%, almost half, have no relationship with the God of Scriptures. 35% come to church. That puts us 19th in the nation. So we, we need to weep 
with what's broken right now. And we need to say, do I have a willingness to turn for that? I want to show you what Philip does in the scriptures. When, when the Holy Spirit comes to, to Philip, it doesn't say, here's your discipleship manual. I want you to go talk to this guy. It says, Philip, go to the road that goes to Jerusalem, to Gaza. Philip doesn't say, why? Who am I going to meet there? What am I going to do there? How am I going to do it? He just went. And what happened is, God transformed through Philip's presence, the Ethiopian eunuch. Now what Philip did was he looked towards God and not towards himself. And this is one of the first things we need to do when we make disciples be willing. We need to take our eyes off of I. We need to take our eyes off of ourselves. We need to look away from ourselves. And you say, how could I ever do this? And I will tell you that you cannot. You need to take your eyes off of I. You got to move away from your human securities. That you say, I don't know what to say. You need to move away from your human feelings of rejection. I, I ask them to come to Bible study. I ask them to come to church. I ask them to pray with me and they, they don't want to. They said no. We need to willingly function as if the supernatural God exists. When I was growing up, people spoke to me about God. And through them, I heard God. People spoke. I heard God. Disciple makers need to trust the Lord and not try to control the, the, the conversation. Let God do God's work. Those of us that would make disciples, let God do God's work. And go willingly where and to whom God sends you. I, I preached a sermon a half dozen years ago and one of our guys brought it up to me this last week and he says, one of the things I like about what you said, Pastor Mike, is you told us to just fish our own pond. Fish what you see. Make disciples with the people that are close to you. I said, that sounds like me. And he says, but the thing I love most about your sermon, when you talked about fishing your own pond, you also said this, no one has ever caught anything without baiting a hook and getting the line wet. So if we just sit on the bank and hope the fish to jump into our lap, you'd be hungry. But definitely fish. Lastly, step three. Step three in disciple-making is ability. You have as God needs you to have. You have less than you need to change a heart. Hear what I'm saying. You have less than you need to change a heart. But the creator of all the hearts in all the world has all the tools and insights that you'll need if you're willing and faithful. He'll give you what you need. And God ordains your gifts for his work. Pastor Stan Wilson, who preceded me here, you know, a decade and a half ago, used to always say, God does not call the qualified, but qualifies the call. So here's what we do. I'm going to go fast. I'm going to get to an offering. Listen. Listen to the Spirit of God for empowerment. Listen to the Spirit of God for for guidance, for nudges to go to people, to help people. I, I always hear people say to me, well, I should have called somebody. It's like, when you think that, go. Listen to that Spirit. Call them. Get on the phone. Listen to the people. The example that we have in Scripture is that Philip did not say what he wanted to say. He listened to what the Ethiopian was asking. And then we interpret. We interpret what God is saying in the Scriptures in the natural order, and we respond to what's being asked of us, not the question that we want to answer. We answer what's being asked of us and we testify to God's worth. And we can tell the truth simply. And I know you could do this because I've been around so many of you. You could tell the truth of God from the beginning, that's the creation of the earth, 
through Jesus. I know you can. You might miss a couple of stories in there, but that's not really that necessary. Tell the truth of God and, 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 and share some verses in the whole of it and testify to God's work in your life. And that's so important. We testify to God's word. We testify to God's work in our life. Speak your truth, but don't overwhelm people with it. You know, somebody asked me at a wedding, oh, just about every wedding when I have unchurched folks around, they'll say, well, how do you, how do you become a pastor? Now, I have a 45 to 50 minute sermon on that that I preach at summer games when they have asked by just showing up. But at a wedding, when we're waiting between the salad course and the dry chicken course, not any of the weddings you've hosted me in, of course. That's not the appropriate time. Just simply testify without overwhelming people. Because Philip's, Philip's example in the scripture is all about the person in front of him. There's, there's, there's nothing about that previous successful revival. It's just about a quick story. So enjoy your story about how you've come to Christ, but don't get so drunk with it that you have to tell it over and over. And especially don't become so drunk with it that you have to tell it to an unasking audience. And act in accordance to God's will. The best sentence in this whole scripture, according to me, is when it gets, yeah, go, 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 you people that need your pictures, go, go, go. Um, is that all? If I see anybody that's older than them, go, you're in trouble. <laughs> I'll be alone. <laughs> One of the best lines in this scripture, according to me, is when the Ethiopian eunuch, aching to know what God's word is all about, aching to know um, why he can't be part of it, he simply says to, to, to Philip, there's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? And Philip, in our words, says, nothing, get down. Let's get you wet. Philip went, he listened, he interpreted, he testified. He did what the eunuch needed, not what Peter was programmed or wanted to do. You're called to do the same in the making of disciples. And when a person comes to, becomes a disciple, then throw a party, celebrate. Celebrate because the kingdom has, has, been, has, has been grown. Celebrate the faithfulness because you know what? The reason that we showed up here at 8.30 in the morning on a Sunday morning, a beautiful Sunday morning in August, is because we know what the joy is to live in Jesus Christ and we want others to celebrate with that. And parties always increase if they're good parties. They don't narrow down. The party comes and we party because we get to live out our lives in Christ and we know that that party lasts past what we might know and understand as an eternity. A long, long time. So the mission of making disciples for the eternal God is ours. Today and forever, let us be faithful to that. It's easy to say, but it takes you to do it. I admonish you, I call you to that. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.